This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or ten months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good evening and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Well, friends, it's March, Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. We've talked about the many important issues in the past, like risk factors, screening tests, current treatments. But today we'll talk about that continued hesitation. What are the barriers that keep people from stepping up to this life-saving exam? Joining us is Dr. Mark Pochapin. The Schultz Leeds Professor of Gastroenterology at the NYU School of Medicine, the Director of the Division of GI and Hepatology at NYU Langone Health, and the former president of our big National Society, the American College of Gastroenterology. Welcome, Mark. So great to be here. So nice to talk to you, Marianne, and most importantly, to get people the information they need so that they can stay healthy and keep the people around them healthy. Well, and I think what's really interesting about colorectal cancer, not because it's our favorite thing to talk about, um, but when you think about it, it's the cancer of most. It's the second most common cause of cancer death. People are shocked when I say more people die of colorectal than breast. I think even a lot of doctors don't realize that. It's probably the most preventable cancer because we go in on these search and destroy missions. We find pre-cancer, remove it, wipe the slate clean. But it's probably the most resistant screening test, would you say? Oh, yeah. Um, It's one of the most preventable of all cancers. It's the only cancer that we really have a pre-cancer that is something that we can act on, find, and remove and prevent the cancer from developing. So it's one of the most preventable. It's also one of the most curable of cancers when found early. So as you said, it's a number two cause of cancer-related death for men and women in this country, yet it's the most preventable and curable of all cancers. And that paradox, we have to do better. We have to get people to recognize that the American psyche of healthcare doesn't work here. That means that usually we go to a doctor when we're sick. But for colon cancer, we have to go to a doctor when we're well and prevent ourselves from getting sick, from getting colon cancer. Well, no, you raise another good point that it's it's the second cause of cancer death in both men and women. And it's just about equal in men and women. Women might get diagnosed a little bit later. Maybe there's a little protection from the estrogen. But for the most part, it's not 
The pink campaigns have been wonderful at driving women to mammography, but they also indirectly mislead women to think mammogram and done. We have to change that. And that's what we're in the process of. So let's talk about that really fun bowel prep. In your experience, <laughs> why do you think it's still an issue that keeps people? I mean, there are lots of things that people have to do to stay healthy. And when when people give me a hard time, I say, well, it is not fun. We'll go through the history if you like, but um, it beats chemo and radiation and surgery. That's my answer. Yeah. The bowel prep is the worst part of the procedure. In fact, I was doing procedures this morning and I say to my patients the same thing I say to you and everybody listening, that when you have a colonoscopy, the worst is over. By the time you you get to the procedure and you're going to have the procedure, you've been through the bowel prep. That's the worst part of the procedure. The procedure itself is done under sedation. Patients fall asleep. They let us do the driving. We do the procedure. We look for polyps. We remove polyps if we find them. And they wake up and they feel comfortable and mm -hmm. usually eating some graham crackers. But the prep is essential because it washes out the colon to make it look clean. People always are amazed. How can we do this, this procedure? I'm sure you've had that also, Marianne. People look at us. They think, well, wait, what's wrong with you as a physician that you would choose this profession? And I explained to them that actually when we work in the colon, it's clean. It's prepped. It looks like the inside of the mouth. But the reason it has to be prepped is because the only way we're going to find these polyps is when the prep is so clean that the inside of the colon is literally glistening. And these polyps, particularly the flat ones, can be seen and then removed preventing them from ever getting the opportunity of turning cancerous. Mm -hmm. So people need to understand that you kind of can't take any shortcuts and you can't cheat. Oh, they'll never know if I, you know, eat solid food the day before, or if I have something to drink before the test. Yes, we do. Uh, and yeah. some, yeah, for some people, if they do, they follow the directions to the T and they still have some residuals. So Let's walk through the prep. Well, Marianne, I want to I want to tell you one of the think the biggest mistakes that people make with the bowel prep is that they think that they can stop the prep once they start developing diarrhea, mm. and they have to complete the entire prep because truthfully, the type of fluid that needs to come out of the bowel by the end of the prep has to really look almost clear. It should look more like urine than it does stool. Good point. And if you stop right when the diarrhea starts, there's still a lot of solid and dark material that won't allow us to see. When we look in the colon, it is clean, but it's clean because people have completed the whole prep. So that's the most important thing people have to recognize. But we let's go through the specifics and so people understand what that's about. Sure. So three days ahead, we asked people to eliminate the more fiber uh filled foods like salads and raw veggies and whole grain. But let's talk about the day before. I think that's what people, there's some confusion there. Yeah. Well, the day before we generally, and I'll say historically, put people on clear liquids. And that's the safest thing, meaning that we want no residue in the food at all. There have been some studies that suggest that actually low residue, food that has no residue at all that's fully digested, might be okay. And in fact, there are um, people who are developing food-based preps, and hopefully down the horizon, we will see some uh, food that might be allowed during the day before. But I think until we have that, we really have to make sure that people will talk to the doctor about what is allowed. Generally, it's liquid that you can see through. So soup is like clear chicken broth would be okay. Um, you, you know, any type of um, drink that you could see through, but not food such as milk or um, not uh, soup that has chicken in it or noodles in it. Um, that being said, 
the most important thing is staying away from the fibrous food, as you had mentioned, particularly raw fruits and vegetables, food that have residue, that uh, have high fiber, that by definition doesn't digest well, because that's going to leave a residue in the colon. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to really stress, I tell my patients you can have coffee or tea, but no milk. What's your understanding mm -hmm. of the no milk, the residue or... I learned an interesting fun fact from an anesthesiologist. Well, I think the milk and, and full liquids, as they're called, or liquids that have fats or other substances is more um, a concern for the anesthesiologist because it doesn't yes. empty as quickly and may be in the stomach. Uh, generally, that's more important, particularly the night before. And people now are on these medications that help them lose weight, like Ozempic and others, but they cause gastroparesis or decreased stomach emptying. So if people are taking medicine to lose weight, they may actually have decreased emptying and something they ate for dinner the night before may actually still be in their stomach the morning of a procedure. And again, another reason why the clear liquids. But I'm curious what your anesthesiologist told you. If you do have slow emptying, either because of diabetes or a medication, that if there is any residual milk in your stomach and then you're lying down and you're sleeping and if any fluid is in your stomach and refluxes up and you aspirate milk, it can damage your lungs much more than a clear liquid. Yeah, that, I think that's true with all of these um, non-clear liquids. Even though they're liquid, they may have a lot of protein, a lot of fat in them that can be very irritating to the lungs. God forbid they aspirate. So, you know, mm -hmm. we want to avoid an aspiration at all possible costs. That's one of the risks of anesthesia, which is why, again, the clear liquid diet, and particularly the night before, is so important. Some people try and sneak something in. That's the worst thing they could do is eat something and not tell us about it because it could be very damaging if it were to come up, they get nauseous, they vomit, or if they aspirate. Yeah. And so I always stress, especially with a new patient, NPO is Latin for nil, meaning nothing, nada, nil per us, nothing in your mouth. So once or twice a year, I see a patient sitting in the waiting area and they're drinking a bottle of water because they're quote unquote fasting. They're filling their stomach with fluid. And the anesthesia team always says, when was the last time anything went past your lips? And if they, or, or you don't want people to suck on a peppermint or chew gum either because it creates saliva that they drink and stirs acid, which you don't want them to aspirate and bicarb. So, so nothing. Now, if somebody has to take their medications with a sip of water, we want them to do at least two hours before. The medications are fine. Mm -hmm. um, usually we have people who are doing procedures in the morning, take their meds afterwards, unless they absolutely need it. Um, blood pressure medicines, they, unless they could speak to the doctor about, very often they can um, take their blood pressure medication before, or the real issue with sedation is a low blood pressure, not a high mm -hmm. blood pressure. So their blood pressure is not too high. If they skip their medication, it's not going to be a problem, but it's something they need to discuss either with their um, doctor prescribing the blood pressure medicine or the gastroenterologist. Mm -hmm. So when we look back on the history of the PrEP, in the 80s, it was two and a half days of laxatives and enemas. That's why we have to get the marketing team out there to say it's not that ugly. It's much prettier. And then the 90s, we thought we were so star worried with the, the, the four-gallon jug. It looks bigger than a – really, it is a little bigger than a, a gallon. Um, but let's talk about the split prep for a minute because that has enabled us to help the patient clear, but it's, it's much kinder. That's the word I use mm -hmm. for the, the current prep. 
True. So the split prep has been a game changer. It is not only easier to take from the patient perspective, and I can tell you I've been through this a number of times myself on the patient side, it's much easier to take as a split prep. But more Mm -hmm. importantly, that it also has a better result on the prep. The the closer you can get that second dose, that split dose um, to the procedure, Actually, the better irrigator washed out the deep aspect of the colon, what we call the right colon or the area that's the deepest inside the body by the cecum and the appendix. So that split prep is good for the patient and good for the doctor. So it's a better on both sides. The more the patient can tolerate the prep and take it, the better the prep, but also the split dose allows us to have an improved clearance and uh, cleansing of the colon. In the past, when we started with the split prep, we say, take some at say four or five o'clock, wait four or five hours to the second. Now we say, we're going to torture you a little bit and ask you to take the second one liter bottle and then a liter of something that's a little more tasty about uh, four to six hours before the scope, because even though you're not eating, your small bowel makes a, a filmy substance called chyme. We don't want to cover any little bumps. We don't want any puddles or solid leftover. Enough said, but... The other important point you make is the very tippy top of the colon or the part deepest inside, the right colon, certain groups are more likely to have lesions there. African-Americans, women, people that have had their gallbladders removed, and smokers, oddly enough. And then some of the really aggressive polyps are more likely to live there too, right? Serrated, we call them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it could be really difficult to see. Uh, They could be very flat. And if they're covered by a little of that residue they may not be seen. And that is the worst outcome where you have the procedure and go all through this, but your prep isn't good enough and something might be missed. Obviously, we want to give patients the highest possible quality colonoscopy. And that on their part requires a good prep. On our part, there are other factors that we need to take into consideration between training and time and the way we look and the technique. But from the patient side, the best thing they could do is really follow the directions and take that prep. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit, too, about the screening age and why it's been lowered. We have about 30 seconds. Let's start to talk about that for a second, because um, when we give an age that we want people to start screening, we say that's the latest you should begin. Not like, oh, that's kind of cool, but I'll wait till 50. Why 45? Yeah, it's really interesting, uh, Marianne, that we have such a success story where we're seeing the death rate, mortality, and the incidence of colon cancer dropping, really plummeting for people over the age of 60 and 65. But unfortunately, we're seeing the death, we're seeing the numbers rise for younger adults. It's almost like it's been frame shifted by 10 years when you look at the actual rates. So by starting earlier at age 45, we're able to find these polyps before they get the chance to turn cancerous, and we're addressing it in younger adults in addition to older adults. Mm -hmm. Let's take a little break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about colon cancer screening with Dr. Mark Bochapin. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. 
At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like, how can the healthcare industry earn the trust of patients? And what if your health outcomes and access to care weren't defined by your skin color, sexuality, gender, or zip code? At Genentech, we're removing barriers and partnering across the medical community to make clinical research as diverse as the world we serve to ensure communities have access to healthcare. Learn how we are working to make healthcare more equitable at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. This is Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Colon cancer, the number two cause of cancer death. Initial screening has been lowered from age 50 to 45 because numbers are rising in younger people. Join the Blue Lights campaign in March. Put a strand of blue lights on your home or business, a blue light on your porch. Send a photo of your lights or of you wearing blue to info at bluelightscampaign.com, info at bluelightscampaign.com. Stop cancer, get screened. We're back with Dr. Mark Pochapin from NYU Lancone Health. Mark, we were talking about the reason that the screening age for all people of average risk, we're going to talk about that a little bit, but every U.S. citizen should be scoped at age 45, unless there are reasons why we'd want them to start at a younger age. But to add to that, we were doing pretty well, right? Probably in the year 2000, maybe 20% of people were stepping up to have colonoscopy. And then by by 2015, 2016, it was like 60%. Mm-hmm. Um, and then came COVID. Well, in between was the 80% by 18, the American Cancer Society, all the big national societies, and uh, went up a little bit. But COVID, according to American Cancer Society, people should hear this, that between March and June alone of 2020, that 18,000 cases were missed or delayed, even delayed. And we can't, we have to, so we're trying to move ahead and catch up where the lag is. So um, I think it's good that we're decreasing the age to 45. Yeah. And also to recognize that the age of onset has decreased, although we're seeing a significant decline in older Americans, particularly over the age of 60, we're actually seeing an, an increase in numbers of colon cancer in younger adults in 30s and 40s, even as, as young as 20. Um, now, the numbers are much less. Uh, you have a much less chance of developing colon cancer if you're 40 than if you're 70. However, we're really screening and doing a great job screening older adults 
but the younger cases going up really allowed us to look back at the guidelines and frame shift the start date from where it used to be 50 to 45. So now we say 45 is the new 50. So anybody who's 45 and has average risk, that means they have no family history of colon cancer. They have not had um, any symptoms that they're concerned about, like rectal bleeding or change in bowel habits. They are healthy. They have no family history of cancer. They should start at age 45. But to your point, if there is a family history, let's say a parent or a grandparent had colon cancer, particularly at a young age, I actually scoped someone today whose father had colon cancer at age 48. So he started screening in his late 30s. And um, it's really important people recognize that family history means you start at age 40 or 10 years before the first person had colon cancer. Mm-hmm. And I know sometimes there's a distinction if that person is under 60, you start, meaning the family member who had the colon cancer was under 60. But um, I think the, the thing that's sort of brushed aside, a lot of patients, doctors don't always ask about family history of colon polyps. Oh, yeah. It makes them crazy mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's a that can be a factor as well, meaning start at a younger age. And then if you are scoped and you don't have any polyps, it's let's say it's a, a 40-year-old because their dad had colon cancer at 52 and they have no polyps, we may bring them back at an earlier point in time. Right. And if your parents had colon polyp at a younger age, if they've had multiple colon polyps that are considered precancerous polyps, adenomas or sessile serrated polyps, then that actually puts you at increased risk for colon cancer and actually makes you a higher risk individual. And you should talk to your doctor about starting perhaps at age 40 or even younger, again, depending on how young your parents were. Same holds true with siblings. When I find a polyp in a young patient, I tell them that this is a family problem, that they need to tell their siblings about this because they may, a sibling may be younger. And if I find someone in their 40s, let's say we do that first screening at 45, we find a large polyp. Now the family members are probably going to start younger, um, either 40 or perhaps even 10 years before that first polyp. Yeah. Well, I remember reading the big study that showed us the data that said, the cohort or the group of people who were born in 1990, when they reached 30, their risk for rectal cancer was four times greater and colon two times greater than people who were born in 1970 when they reached the age of 30. Yeah, those graphs are really actually when you see them plot out, yeah. you see it looks like a, a nice downhill slope. For those who are 55, 60, 65, 70, with really plummeting rates of colon cancer. But when you start looking at the younger cohorts, those rates are heading up. And actually, they're beginning to cross. In other words, a a risk of a 40-year-old might actually be greater than that of a 50-year-old. And if we don't address this, we're going to start seeing more younger people have increased rates as the older population gets screened and we prevent colon cancer. So we have to do better particularly with family history, about 20 to 25% of patients will have some type of genetic or family history risk. And it's so frustrating when you diagnose the young patient with colon cancer, when you find out actually there's a family history that nobody recognized. That's the, right, right, Marin? That's the most frustrating of all. When you're together for Thanksgiving or a family barbecue, whatever it is, don't be embarrassed. It could save your life. Um, The list goes on. And the other big message is if you're having symptoms, I go to your doctor, whether you're 28 or 38, because it could be something else that needs attention, like uh, inflammatory bowel disease or, um, 
but I know I have a list, a separate list of my people under age 33 that have adenomas. We probably won't get into discussing what types of polyps there are, but that's the kind that we know can grow and turn into colon cancer. So I probably have, uh, you may have a lot more, at least 20 people under age 33 with adenomas. They were oh, picked yeah. up because they thought they had food poisoning or something. Last year, I had Robin Mendelson from Memorial, mm-hmm. from Sloan Kettering, and they have a young patient registry. Do you have one as well? We do. And actually, Peter Liang has been looking at the databases and looking at the incidence of polyps and cancer in younger individuals, much higher than we thought. Because if you think about it, if we're seeing more cancer, say, in a 40-year-old, the polyp is starting to grow 10-plus years before that. This is what people need to understand. There's a huge window of opportunity to go and find the polyp before it turns cancerous. We think that polyps take 10-plus years to turn cancerous if they're going to do so. And although we believe in average risk patients, all cancers come from polyps, not all polyps turn cancerous. But by finding the polyps and removing them, we prevent the cancer. And we have a long window of opportunity. But if someone's developing cancer in their 40s, that polyp's probably been there for 10 plus years. So that's why we're finding polyps in the 20s and 30s. And we have a a large cohort that we're following. And Dr. Liang is really looking at the numbers, which is which has also helped to make the recommendations to start earlier. Mm-hmm. And I know in a registry like that, you're going to collect samples of blood, tissue, stool. You're going to ask history of how, antibiotic history. How many times did you have antibiotics a child? A child, maybe that influences somebody's microbiome. Were they born by C-section? And, and miss coming through the canal, all those kinds of things where they breastfed. Um, and you're going to ask them questions like uh, about their nutrition, their fertility, all those things that could influence their history that we might find a clue from it 20 years from now when we look back and you have all that data from now. So it's- No, you're right. And, and Marion, the frustrating part here is that we really don't understand why we're seeing increased numbers of colon cancer in younger adults. We really don't. There have been some hypotheses, and you had mentioned a few of them, a change in the microbiome, which is the bacteria that live in our gut, perhaps due to antibiotic use or increased antibiotic use, um, where um, younger people are exposed to more antibiotics than, than older individuals, perhaps a change in diet with more fat and sugar um, in the American diet, perhaps uh, increased BMI or obesity in younger adults, perhaps decreased physical activity. Um, perhaps the lack of um, organic foods, foods being more processed or some type of chemical preservatives in the foods. But we really don't know. And by collecting the data now, hopefully it will shed some light onto why we're seeing these increased rates. Again, it's not an alarming rate where this is, um, you know, a, a, a needs to set off the um, emergency bells. But it is concerning that we're seeing these increased rates. We don't know why. And a first step is to decrease our screening age, but a second step is to really figure out why and address the root cause. Yeah. I remember um, I trained in New York, as you know, at Sloan Kettering. And and I remember at the time we were seeing all these healthy, beautiful young people that were just disintegrating from diarrhea. And it was the bacteria that was finally isolated and they were HIV. It was before HIV had a name. Mm -hmm. And so we looked at the pattern. Um, But I wonder... Every once in a while, you see a report pop up that a polyp or a biopsy has HPV in it. And because 
our culture has become more sexually active. I wonder if that plays a role in it at all. I mean, I haven't heard that mentioned very much, but I have seen a couple of reports where HPV is in there. I guess, again, we'll find out as time goes on. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up HPV because there is no question that that is a cause of anal cancer. Now, that's very different than colorectal cancer. Anal cancer comes from the squamous epithelium or the lining that's more like the skin on the outside of our body than the skin on the inside of our body. But um, HPV causes anal cancer, it causes cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. And that's why the vaccine to HPV is so important in wiping out cervical cancer. You know, we learned a lot from our, gynecolo our gynecological colleagues by screening for breast cancer and particularly for cervical cancer. Cervical cancer would be a pap smear, which is uh, dysplasia or precancerous changes that then could be acted on to prevent cervical cancer. In, in polyps, polyps are technically a form of dysplasia that we're removing before the polyp turns cancerous. The difference is cervical cancer and cervical dysplasia on a pap smear is from HPV, where colon polyps we do not think of being an infectious agent. But, you know, to your point, maybe there is an infection. We just haven't identified. Have My wife wonder. is an infectious diseases expert, and she's convinced me that probably everything is either an infection or a result of an infection. Well, I mean, look at COVID. <laughs> Every yeah. effect is from the inflammation. And how many colon cancer biopsies almost always include inflammation? Did the inflammation cause the, you know, the precancerous and then cancerous changes or did the cancer get the, uh, the surrounding tissue upset? We have about one minute. I have to emphasize that point about African-Americans that they're 20% at higher risk of being diagnosed, 40% more likely to die from it. Is it, do you think, risk factors or lack of Healthcare access. There, you know, it, this is one of these disparities in healthcare that we have to figure out and do better. We've seen the disparities in COVID be unmasked. I think the social determinants of health, access to healthcare, transportation, food sources, environmental toxins, all of this probably plays a role. Why we see so much more colorectal cancer at either a more advanced stage or um, having a worse incidence and a higher incidence and a worse mortality, we have to do better, uh, Marianne. And I know that by studying this, we'll figure it out and recognize that we can do better. On that, we ask you to stay with us and come back after the break with Dr. Mark Pochapin. And now for your real champion, I call this segment, You Can Become a Blue Lights Warrior. Colorectal cancer. During several shows, we've discussed risk factors, advances in testing and treatments, but historically, it's been one of those topics that people just want to avoid. So in this week's show, we ask the question, what are the barriers to screening? Number one, well, there's the prep. Okay, it's annoying, but we just learned that it's a much smaller quantity, and by splitting it, drink half now and the other half four to six hours prior to the test, it's much more comfortable and more effective. Number two, misconceptions. For instance, women have always lied behind men in screening for colon cancer. Maybe it's because they already take time for mammogram and gynecology exams. And the pink campaigns do great work, but maybe indirectly make women think it's a man's disease. The message is equal in men and women, and more people die from colorectal cancer than breast cancer. Repeat, more people die of colon cancer than breast cancer. So ladies, remember, your cancer prevention plan includes more than just a mammogram. 
Number three, the delay from the pandemic. American Cancer Society reports that in the first three months of lockdown, 18,000 cases of colon cancer were missed or delayed because we stopped elective procedures. So get back on schedule for all of your screenings. You know I'm a GI doctor, I am a cancer warrior, and every type of cancer is evil. But here's why I focus on colon cancer. It's the cancer of mosts. It's the second most common cause of cancer death, second only to lung cancer. It's the screening test that people are most likely to resist, but it's probably the most preventable cancer. Other tests like mammograms find early cancer. Colonoscopy finds and removes pre-cancer. What's not to like? Now, not all polyps become cancer, but all cancer starts as a polyp. So every polyp is my enemy. Two years ago, the screening age for everyone dropped from age 50 to 45. Why? Because we've seen a significant rise in numbers in people below age 50, even under 40. And African-Americans are 20% more likely to be diagnosed, 40% more likely to die from colon cancer than people of other races. So I repeat, the latest anyone should begin colon cancer screening is age 45, maybe younger if you have a family history of, wait for it, not just colon cancer, but colon polyps. Learn your family history. And if you have symptoms, see your doctor immediately, no matter what your age, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, weight loss, change in bowel pattern, rectal bleeding. March is colon cancer awareness month. Sadly, Philly has one of the lowest colon cancer screening rates of any major city in the country. Come on now, we have the very best fans in the country. So my goal is to make you all colon cancer screening fans. I'm the director of the Blue Lights Campaign. Each year in March, the city is wrapped in blue. Multiple buildings in Philly shine in blue, sharing the urgent message that screening for colon cancer saves lives. This week, your real champions are all the people who have supported the campaign, and I want to thank each of you by name. You are the Blue Lights Warriors, and together we will conquer colon cancer. Thank you, Pico, the Brickstone Company, for the beautiful display at Lip Brothers. Brandywine Realty for FMC Tower and Sierra Center, One Liberty and Two Liberty Place, BNY Mellon, Franklin Institute, the Ben Franklin Bridge, Lowe's Hotel for PSFS, Part Town Place Apartments, the Kimmel Center, the Union League, Boathouse Row, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Methodist Hospital, all the hospitals at the University of Penn, in the sub- suburbs, Kimco Realty for Lighting Suburban Square, and St. Joe's University and the Pennsylvania State Capitol, blue for the entire month for the last six years. And thanks to the annual help of the National Lieutenant Governors Association, now every state capitol is invited to shine in blue during March. Yes, we are a national blue movement. You too can be blue light warriors. Join the campaign, decorate the door to your home or office in blue lights, a strand of blue lights on your bushes, a blue bulb on your porch light, the check-in desk at work, have a blue lights contest with your neighbors. Then send a picture of your home or office in blue lights to info at bluelightscampaign.com. We'll post it on our website, bluelightscampaign.com. Then send your photo to info at bluelightscampaign.com. Then be a real Philly fan and get colon cancer screening and all of your cancer screenings. Remember, start your colon cancer screening at age 45 maybe sooner if you have a family history of colon cancer or colon polyps. We salute you, Blue Light Warriors. This week, our real champions. 
Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. When you have orthopedic issues, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes orthopedics. You need an exceptionally specialized Rothman orthopedics physician. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. That's RothmanOrtho.com. When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like when it comes to diseases, can we strive to treat, prevent, and even reverse them? And how can we make healthcare more effective and more affordable? These are the types of questions that can help impact the lives of so many patients, that help push the boundaries of innovation and healthcare for all communities. At Genentech, we are the pioneers of the biotech industry, tackling some of the biggest questions in healthcare. Learn more at gene.com/askbiggerquestions. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. And we're back on Your Radio Doctor, having a great conversation, trying to understand why, if colorectal cancer is so preventable, or found at an early stage so treatable, why people still hesitate. So, Mark, we talked about some very important points one of them I want to revisit with um, certain groups of people like African-Americans, women, people who smoke or people that have had their gallbladder removed, they're more likely to get polyps or even cancer, especially the, the type that's flat and really easily camouflaged um, at the top of the colon, which we call the proximal or the right colon. That's where the prep if it's not done well, it's most likely to puddle and cover scary stuff. Exactly. And that's where the patient plays such an important role, recognizing by taking that prep. And early in the show, we talked a lot about the prep, but the most important thing for patients to know is that they have to take the prep the way they're instructed and complete it. So it washes that deep aspect of the colon. So these very flat polyps can be seen and removed. You don't want to have the colonoscopy only to have an inadequate prep and have to redo it. That's you know, a nightmare for both the doctor and the patient. So I think the prep is important. And to your point, some patients may have more of a predisposition to flatter polyps, particularly uh, African-American patients, as we know, may have more deeper polyps and flatter polyps. So it's really important that we get people screened. Colonoscopy allows us not only to look for these polyps, but remove them. It's both diagnostic and therapeutic, which is why it's such a powerful procedure and why we're seeing decreasing rates of colon cancer and um, new cases of colon cancer because of all the screening and the awareness, but we need to do better, Mary. Yeah. Um, and you know what I do with, if I have a patient and of course we always ask all the symptoms, do you have belly pain, do you have this or that? And if their history includes constipation, even if I've had it for years, instead of giving them the regular prep, I invite them to take a delicious, 
little little dose of the bowel prep, Miralax, for one or two days, two or three days before they do the bowel prep. And then I haven't wasted their time. If a person comes in and their prep isn't good, we have to bring them back, which is really hard to hear after you've been sedated. So the other major point here, Mark, that we can't emphasize enough, equal occurrence between men and women. And so I get on a soapbox all over Philadelphia. I do lectures in community centers and all kinds of places saying, ladies, your cancer prevention plan is more than just a mammogram. And we talked about this, that there are risks. If a person has, a woman has colorectal cancer before age 50, up goes the risk for ovarian and uterine cancer. And the reverse, if you're diagnosed with uterine cancer below age 50, up goes the colon risk. But if you all the way to 65, you know, you think if somebody has a cancer and they're young, whew, their their body is finicky. They're at risk for lots of stuff. But ovarian, you think, okay, people get cancer in their 60s, but all the way to 65 bumps your risk for colon. So we with gynecologists have to really work together and make sure that we get that message out to women. It's so important. And Marianne, we had a really great campaign when I was part of both the ACG and the ASGE, which are um, societies, gastrointestinal societies, with um, our GYN colleagues, talking about the need for women to not only know about breast and uterine and, um, and cervical cancer and knowing about their bodies as gynecologists like to care for women, um, but they have to know that the colon is an important organ that is also at risk for cancer because not only do women need to get screened for colon cancer, it is well known that women are also the gatekeepers of healthcare in a family. And so if a woman understands that she needs to get screened for herself, but also needs her family screened, then the family will come along and she could act as a, as a role model of getting screened herself. So it's so important to protect women in the family, but women will also get other family members screened as well. And that's why um, I think, you know, for whatever reason, the colon seems to be associated with men. <laughs> colon cancer, it's a myth, um, has been said to be something that men need to worry about, but actually it's an equal opportunity cancer and women have to worry equally as much as Absolutely. men. Absolutely. So Mark, we talked about the definition of family history. It's not just colorectal cancer, it's colon polyps. What if a person has their first colonoscopy exam that we're going to invite them back for what we call a surveillance exam if they have polyps? If they have polyps, it depends on how many they have, what size they are, and if they have, uh, if they're completely benign or if they're becoming precancerous and, and closer to cancer. Obviously, we're going to ask them to come back. Uh, depending on those metrics. What if a person has their first colonoscopy with no polyps, but they have a family history? When do we invite them back? Okay, so let's let's even back up one step. Healthy patient, no family history, has a colonoscopy at age 45, perfectly clean colon, no polyps. They're good for 10 years. So it really is that long a period, and we have good data to show that 10 years is a interval that's safe to wait for no family history, average risk, clean colon. Now, if someone has a family history, they may start at age 40 instead of 45 with their first colonoscopy. And they usually get a colonoscopy every five years instead of every 10 years, depending on the family history. Um, the, 
also, if there's a very significant family history, like, for example, if a parent had um, a young age of onset of colon cancer, we might also offer genetic testing to make sure that they don't have a genetic condition that may predispose cancer at a much faster rate where they might need to be screened more often. That condition, for example, is Lynch syndrome, is also associated with uterine cancer in women and ovarian cancer um, as well. Could also be pancreatic cancer, um, stomach cancer, even what we call uroepithelial, which would be bladder or kidney. So there are a lot of cancers associated with it, which is why if there's family history of cancer, talk to your doctor because genetic testing may show something. But back yeah. to your question, no, no family history, no polyps 10 years, family history and no polyps five years. Now, if there are polyps, depending on the size and number, it could be three years, five years, seven years, or 10 years, depending on what we find. And if a polyp is large and needs to be resected in multiple pieces, very often we go back within a year. And if you have symptoms, if you have symptoms between today when you have no polyps and you got the pass for five or even 10 years, or I should say 10 years or even five years, if you have bleeding or change in your bowel habits, we want to make sure that something didn't crop up between now and then. This is such... This is such an important point. Screening is about healthy people, about people who feel well. There was actually an ad from Memorial Sloan Kettering that showed, that said, do you feel well? That's the greatest symptom of a polyp, meaning that screening is about healthy people. But if you have symptoms, blood in the stool, change in the bowel habits where you have narrowing or thinning in the bowel movement, or a change in uh, where you can't move your bowels, not something that happens a day or two and then reverts to normal, but something that's ongoing. If your doctor finds that you're anemic or you're low in iron and doesn't have a good reason, these are symptoms. This is diagnostic now. It's no longer screening. And that's a time for diagnosis. Need to see your doctor and get evaluated appropriately. And, and Mark, I know for a short time anywhere, there was a, uh, a thought that maybe if a person had... Um, one or that if there's a family history and no polyps in yourself, then maybe we could make it five to seven years or stretch it out a little bit. But yes, so it really is individualized. It depends on how young a family member is, what the type of cancer is. Um, so I think that's a discussion. The point is for people who have family histories, they need to talk to their doctor about when to get screened and what the appropriate right. follow up is. Now, what about a um, we're talking about artificial intelligence? coming into colonoscopy. Mm. You know what? Let's put that on the back burner for one second. Because for our listeners, we've talked all about colonoscopy. And we've done other shows, even with you, that we talked about the tools that we use to screen because some people say, absolutely no, I'm not. Or some people might have volatile blood pressure or they're, they're, they're too sick to go through the prep or the colonoscopy. What are the other tools and what do you have to say about them? Right. So there's something called FIT, F-I-T, fecal immunochemical test, which looks for microscopic blood in the stool. It's a stool test. It's actually very inexpensive, about $20, and very easy to do. It's just a matter of providing a stool sample that gets tested with either like a paintbrush type of device um, and gets sent to a lab looking for microscopic blood. The difference there is that needs to be done every year. It's looking primarily for early cancer. It has about a 72% detection rate of early cancer. 
Um, but it's a really good test. And for people who say, I'm not getting a colonoscopy, I don't want a colonoscopy, then the best test is the one that gets done. And if they'll do that fecal immunochemical test or FIT test, then that's what they should do. There should be no excuse not to test at all. If you don't want a colonoscopy, the FIT test is a great test. The uh, All the GI societies and the multi-society guidelines suggest is the top tier colonoscopy or FIT. So one or the other, it's a good test. It does pick up early cancer and could save someone's life. There's also a test called Cologuard, which you may see advertised on TV. It's that fit test. Yeah, with that little box. And there was <laughs> the just a Saturday. Box, did you yeah. see the Saturday Night Live skit on it? Oh, it's, yeah. that's hysterical. That's always brilliant. Anyway, it's yeah. a little box, but it's it looks for that fit, that fecal immunochemical test, and abnormal DNA. The ability to detect cancer goes up from 70% to 90%. But the problem is they're more false positive. So people have to be wary. If they have a positive Cologuard test, it doesn't mean they have cancer. It means they need a colonoscopy. Any test other than colonoscopy, if positive, needs a colonoscopy. Right. So I look at colonoscopy as a one-step test and anything else, whether it's FIT, Cologuard, or other tests that are being developed, they're positive they need a colonoscopy. That would be a two-stage test. But either stool test really pretty much picks up cancer and is not very good about picking up polyps because blood is food for cancer. So the more cancerous a polyp or the larger it is, it's going to trickle blood. So you hope that as that stool comes through the tunnel, it brushes past a bloody growth. And that's why we look for blood in the stool. In the old days, the old stool test, we're picking up blood from animals like rare hamburger yesterday or or certain medications could flip it and, and give us a false positive. The fit test is much more accurate or, or uh, specific. But the, the good thing about that is, as you say, it's inexpensive. It's yearly. The dancing box sounds very Star Wars DNA. People say, oh, then that's going to be really true. A positive doesn't tell us positive blood or positive DNA, right? And also a lot, I, I, a lot of people are misusing it because if you have a family history or you've had polyps before, then you're yes. high risk. Need a colonoscopy. Also, I just got referred an 88-year-old patient who um, was having some rectal bleeding, and the doctor wanted to make sure they didn't have cancer and gave them the Cologuard, which, of course, turned positive because it's looking for blood. So, you know, we have to make sure that we use these tests wisely and appropriately. Well, the other thing is the dancing box, it misses 8% of cancers. It's 92% pickup. I don't want to be one of those 8% in whom it's missed because you can only do it every three years because it's $649.30, right? Yeah, it's a every three-year test. That's true. Um, and um, the box is going to pick up more cancers in it. About 40% polyp, so it does pick up some polyp, but not um, – But again, it misses – Right. You know. But again, if someone's going to do the Cologuard test, the dancing box as you call it, I would much rather have them do that than not do anything. And that – is a good test for picking up early cancers, and um, it's uh, it, it could save a life the same way colonoscopy can. I think the most important thing is that someone make sure that they get tested and screened, whatever recommended way it is. And the three that we really have available to us today is colonoscopy, FIT, and Cologuard. Those are the three that generally are, are used. There is a Flexig, which is a uh, small colonoscopy, which most people don't use in this country. Um, there is something called virtual colonoscopy or CT colonography, but you have to take the bowel prep. And if you find a polyp anyway. on an x-ray, you're then going to need yeah. to have a colonoscopy and take the bowel prep again. Yeah. And we talked about how yeah. awful the bowel prep can be. Yeah. And there's a, and the, the CT colonography can lead to a perforation also. It's not 
because of the air that they use to insufflate, so it's not without risk. Let's take a little break and we'll be back for our wrap up with Dr. Mark Pachapin from NYU. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. I'm Caitlin Baldwin, Clinical Coordinator at Recovery Centers of America at Lighthouse in New Jersey, one of your addiction experts from RCA. Today, I'm here to talk about the family dynamics within addiction. The price of addiction is one's personal destruction. Unfortunately, their family members become their audience. The family disease concept of addiction highlights how one person may use or drink, but the whole household becomes sick. The family members will report feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. Dysfunctional titles within the family unit will emerge. These titles will include an enabler, hero, a mascot, a scapegoat, lost child, and many more. Family members will demonstrate trauma responses, lose sight of their own well-being, and feel that they can cure, change, and control their loved one's addiction. Some helpful tips include seeking family education and support groups on addiction. These informative groups will cover important topics such as addiction on the brain, establishing healthy boundaries, effective communication, and much more. If you or your loved one needs help with drugs or alcohol, reach out to Recovery Centers of America at 833-969-0268 or visit rcaradiodr.com. That's rcaradiodr.com. We answer the phone and admit patients 24-7. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. When you have joint pain, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes joints. Someone so focused on their specialty, they've written the book on it, literally. You need an exceptionally specialized physician from Rothman Orthopedics. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past the pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. Official orthopedic partner of the Eagles, Phillies, and Sixers. Now, your weekly prescription brought to you by Genentech, the science-driven company that pioneered the biotech industry to transform how we treat the world's most complex health problems. Welcome back to our final segment of Your Radio Doctor. We call this segment Your Weekly Prescription, brought to you by Genentech. Dr. Mark Pochapin, you are just a fountain of information, and we're so thrilled that you were able to join us. Let's revisit the idea of artificial intelligence. Does that have any role in colonoscopy? I know that's become a thing, sort of. So we've been studying AI to look at the images as people doing colonoscopy are looking at the screen. The AI might put a box around something it thinks is a polyp. I think it's a nice safety net. It's like another set of eyes looking behind your shoulders. But truthfully, 
I think the uh, most important thing is the high-quality colonoscopy by someone really well-trained who's going to use all the quality markers. AI is uh, something that will help, but it's not going to be the game changer to change anything what we're currently doing well now. And there are people studying blood tests. Wouldn't it be great if there were a blood test and there are little little, uh, fragments of DNA that break off from tumor or actually other cells like platelets can have changes in people that have colon cancer. So it could be pretty cool if we could do a blood test and say, you're good or you, or else you need colonoscopy. I think that's coming. I really do think we're going to get there. We have a lot of exciting tests. We're doing some studies at NYU Langone right now, but people shouldn't wait for that. The best test right now is the one that gets done and to do it and not wait. But I do think over the next few years, we're going to have really good blood tests that might be comparable to some of the fecal tests we have looking and trying to diagnose early colon cancer. So our major take home message is the bullets from the show. The prep is kinder. It's come a long way. Age 45, 45 is the latest you should begin screening, maybe earlier. What are the other points you wanted to make, Mark? I think African-Americans need to recognize that they have a higher incidence of new cases, also higher mortality. We need to try and work on the disparities we see in the care of African-American patients and their diagnosis of colon cancer. If you're African-American, please talk to your doctor or healthcare provider about getting screened. Know your family history. Critically important, particularly tumors other than colon cancer, like gynecologic tumor, like um, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer. This may put you at increased risk. And know that by talking about your family history, it also means siblings and um, what we call first-degree relatives. If they have a history of polyps, it may put you at increased risk, and you may need to get screened at a younger age. So, again, if you have a parent, a sibling, or God forbid, a child, God forbid, any of them, but um, with colorectal cancer or colon polyps, that bumps your risk as well. And we're saying that there are family trees, um, that the, the history of the family even if you don't have a genetic marker, or if you yourself have had ovarian or uterine cancer, it bumps your risk for colorectal cancer. And Dr. Ritchie, the best test is the one that gets done. And if you're feeling well, that's the time to get screened. Do something well. I want my listeners to know that they could go on Be Serious, Serious XM Radio, Station 110, and hear Dr. Mark Puchapin. Are you usually on Thursdays? Uh, Thursday afternoons. That's right. Could I be your agent or what? <laughs> I have to have you on my show, Dr. Richie. Oh, wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> well, you know what? If anybody out there wants Dr. Mark Puchapin's autograph, you can come through me. <laughs> I'm your contact. Mark, thank you so much. You are a busy man, and we really appreciate especially the way you explain things so clearly. Thank you. Well, I was born in Pennsylvania and I went to school in Philadelphia. (laughs) I love the town. And thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, I can't send you a hoagie because that is processed meat. I'll send you a soft pretzel. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to your radio doctor every week here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT every Saturday at 5. Thank you for helping us celebrate the beginning of season four today. We look forward to many more great shows. Next week, our guest is a triathlete, and he's an orthopedic surgeon who treats the injuries of fellow athletes in these endurance sporting events. We thank our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and for support from Recovery Centers of America and Genentech. A special thank you to Stephanie Stahl of CBS3 and Aaron Coleman of NBC10 for inviting me to be a guest on their shows this week to talk about the Blue Lights campaign. Remember, join the Blue Lights campaign to conquer colon cancer. Put a strand of blue lights on the front of your home or business. Send a photo to info at bluelightscampaign.com. 
then go and get your cancer screenings. It's a Philly thing. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, and safe week with the ones you love. Always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre recorded.